We have been studying Psalm 96 this evening in an attempt to answer the question, why should we be missionaries? And we offered four reasons. Our first reason to be a missionary is simply obey the Bible. Jesus commands it, so we should be missionaries. The second reason to be a missionary is compassion. We want to help them get out of poverty or get out of debt or get out of disease or barrenness or destitution or hardship. And the Bible and the gospel and Christian love can help do that. We want to see them saved. That's the third reason, so they won't go to hell. But the fourth and greatest reason is the glory of God, or as we've circled here, the beauty of God. So we went through Psalm 96, and we attempted to see how God is glorified in this psalm. And we saw that he is glorified as the Lord, as Yahweh. And we saw him glorified as the Savior, then glorified as the Creator, then glorified as he is the king. But Psalm 96 has much more than that. It's going to tell us who should glorify God. And this is really where it gets very interesting. I put a box in my Bible around these phrases. All the earth. Do you see that in verse 1? Or peoples, or nations, and what's the last use of the word? Families, in verse, is it verse 8? Verse 7. Families of the earth. So... Notice these four terms and how they're used. Notice in verse 1. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord who? So David is speaking to all the people who live in the earth. And he's telling them to do something. What is he telling them to do in verse 1? He's telling them to sing... And he's telling them that their, their singing will have an audience. Who's listening to the singing of all the earth in verse 1? Jehovah. So there is one audience in verse 1. It's Jehovah. Sometimes in worship services, pastors and churches forget that there is one audience. And the audience is God. So our preferences are actually not very important. What is important are his preferences. We need to be asking ourselves, did he give us any revelation so that we would have any idea of what he wants? Well, we know he wants true words, so we'll have to make sure we give him true words. Did he say anything about the way in which we sing? Did he say anything about the form Or the manner. Some people use the word style, even though that is not the best word. Because style tends to indicate preference. Like, you like a green shirt, he likes a red shirt. It's just your style. Form is the better word. But notice that if God is the audience, then all of our questions ought to start and end with him. What does he prefer? My preferences are very secondary. But this group is bound to sing to him. 
And they've got to do more than that. Look in verse 2. Sing to the Lord. What else do they have to do in verse 2? Praise his name or bless his name. What else in verse 2? Proclaim, talk. They are going to have to do something based on their faith. But here's what's very remarkable. Look in verse 3. Declare his glory where? Among the nations. Wait a minute. Who's declaring his glory among the nations? Look, look. Verse 1, it's all the earth declaring his glory where? Among the nations. So this all the earth is not the nations. 100% of the people. Because even after you're done with all the earth, there's still the nations left over. This tells us that it's some... From all the earth going to the rest of the nations. This is really remarkable because what he tells us in verse 1 is that all the earth has an obligation. All the earth, some people from all the earth have to sing. And then it is on their shoulders that they must go to the rest of the people in the nations and they must declare to those people what God has done in his salvation. What does that sound like to you? When some from all the earth go to the rest of the nations, what does that sound like? That's got to be missions. It is the New Testament. It is the Old Testament shadow of the New Testament doctrine of missiology. And David sings about it, though he does not fully understand it. You see, the rest of the nations must fear him and give honor to him and worship him. And let me, answer, uh, let me point to this as well. Because of the way Psalm 96 is written, is it a responsibility for all the earth to sing? Yes or no? A responsibility? Yes. 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 It is a responsibility for all the earth They must sing. Question, is it a responsibility for the rest of the nations to sing? Yes. How can you tell? Well, verse number one, he says, sing to the Lord all the earth. That implies that it's a universal obligation. But they're going to the nations. Why would they be going to the nations if there is no duty on them to sing. I'm bringing this point out because there is a doctrine called hyper Calvinism. Hyper Calvinism says this Hyper Calvinism says it is not the responsibility of the nations to sing. It is only the responsibility of the elect to sing. That's what hyper-Calvinism says. Now, Calvinism teaches it is the responsibility of all to sing, but not all will sing. Hyper-Calvinism goes a step further, and this is the fatal error. 
Hyper-Calvinism denies duty faith. They say, or those who say, those who deny that faith is a duty are hyper-Calvinists by definition. What is hyper-Calvinist except the denial that faith is a duty, which they have often called in the literature, duty faith. Christians say faith is a duty and I must do it and you must do it and sinners must do it. The elect must do it. The non-elect must do it. Now the, the non-elect will not do it. The goats will not do it. They hate God and they hate Christ and they will never believe, but it is still their duty. And in the final day, they will be damned because they did not obey their duty. Hyper-Calvinism says, no, it is not the duty of the non-elect to believe. And I, I see Psalm 96 as standing in opposition to hyper-Calvinism. Because in Psalm 96, it is clearly the duty of all to sing, of all to bless the Lord, of all to show forth his salvation from day to day. So in verse 3, this group, all the earth, must declare God's glory among who? But look at verse 10, it's there again. Say among the nations, tell among the nations, proclaim among the nations. Who's proclaiming among the nations? Look back in verse 9. Who is proclaiming among the nations in verse 9? All the earth. All the earth has to proclaim among the nations. So two times in this psalm, we have... The universal responsibility for all in the earth to believe. And those who do believe must not sit back and say, well, my job's done. No, because it is the duty of all to have faith. It is the duty of all to worship. It is the duty of all to sing. It is the duty of all to fear before the Lord. So once you've got it and you are a Shona, you need to go to the Kalangas. And that is the beginning of the doctrine of missiology. In the Old Testament, you should be training your mind first to sing to Jehovah as the Savior, Creator, and the King. And then you must train your mind to go to the nations and help them do the same thing. Did you follow that? Look at chapter 96, verse 1. Sing unto the Lord what kind of song? A new song. Well, how are you going to sing a new song unless you learn the song and you learn the manner of singing? You're going to have to learn the words. You're going to have to learn the music. You're going to have to learn how to do this. Now, if you are in all the earth, you have a duty to learn the song. But then furthermore, you have a duty to go and learn the right words to tell it to others. That's why classical education is always focused on grammar Logic and rhetoric. Now, I'll just say up front, this is an oversimplification. I'm simply giving you a summary. We could say it more fully, but this is called the trivium. Trivium means three categories of study. We study grammar. This is the rules of language. Logic. This is the rules of thought. Rhetoric. 
This is the rules of speech. You can put this in your notes if you want, if this is interesting to you. We're going to need to learn the rules of language. Tonight, I've been explaining Psalm 96 because I've studied the rules of language, grammar. I could say this is a verb. That is a noun. This is the way language works. That's the first field of study. If we want to be able to master words, we're going to have to understand the laws of language. Secondly are the laws of thought. We're going to have to understand how things can be negated, how things can be parts but not wholes. That's logic. And then finally is the rules of speech. How do we talk to one another? How do we put these thoughts back and forth so that they make sense and persuade people? Now, do you see in Psalm 96 how all three of these come out? Sing to the Lord a new song. You've got to learn language and thought and speech because you're going to be singing this. And then in verse 3, what do you have to do? Well, even in verse 2, what do you have to do in verse 2 that requires grammar, logic, and rhetoric? You're going to have to proclaim his name or praise his name. How are you going to praise his name if you don't know how language works and you don't know how thought works and you don't know how speech works? Classical education was the kind of education that focused on foundational principles. We could say it this way, goodness, truth, and beauty. Or we could say it this way, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Or we could phrase it this way even more abstractly, forming the soul to love what is good, to love what is beautiful, do what is good, and think what is true. This way of thinking is assumed in Psalm 96. And this way of thinking does not come by going to an expensive school or by getting an expensive degree. This kind of thinking comes by using your mind the way God intended it to be. And this is why we are laboring to study serious education so that we'll be able to sing the right way and praise the right way and then proclaim the right way. We're going to have to go out to the nations, the rest of the world. And how are they postured toward us? We learned this last week. How is the rest of the world focused on us when we come to them? They hate us. They're not eager for the message. They might, write, they might like money. They might like cars. They might like hospitals or clinics. But they are not saying, oh, I really want your God and your Jesus. We're going to have to come to them and know the way language works because maybe they don't even know the way their language works. When I first arrived among the Tsonga, there was no grammar book except that which was written by the Swiss missionaries. That is, I knew of no book written by Tsongas explaining how their language worked. And the first man who taught me was a man who had a degree from uh, a college. And he said, Tsonga has no rules. Well, of course Tsonga has rules. You can't say shikwembu yamina. You have to say shikwembu shamina. You can't say mufundis yahina. It's mufundis wahina. Oh, there's rules for every language. And you as a missionary are going to have to learn the rules. Perhaps you'll have to learn the rules better than those people know the rules themselves. So that you'll be able to use the laws of thought and then translate that into language and speech that grips their heart and saves them. This is all what's required and expected if we are going to proclaim the truth to the heathen. That's why, look in the third paragraph down under the heading, we must be training our minds so that we can go out and be persuasive. 
Look in that fourth paragraph. In this Psalter, we have the word world, nations, peoples, for the entire population. Because the Old Testament is commonly thinking about these phrases. All the earth, the peoples, of the, the nations, the families. Look at the verses that are put here in the notes. Numbers 14, 21. This is from Moses. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. There's a prophecy. Moses wrote that and he said, Someday, the day is coming when the earth will be filled with the glory, filled with the glory of the Lord. 1 Samuel 17, 46. David will kill Goliath so that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. David killed Goliath because he wanted the world to know the one true God. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Psalm 66, verse 4. All the earth will worship you. Psalm 72. This is Asaph. Oh no, this is David, I'm sorry, just before Asaph's psalms begin. Let all nations call him blessed. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Isaiah 42.10, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands, the Comoros, and those who dwell in them. Isaiah 42.10. Same thing is there in Daniel 7. And again in Zechariah. 14.9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. So here's our list of motivations to be missionaries. Some people are motivated by obedience. They love the Lord and they want to obey him. Some people are motivated by compassion or mercy or pity. They want to improve the lifestyle of those to whom they are going. Some people are motivated by salvation. They want to save them from hell. Some people are motivated by the beauty and glory of God. This is the strongest and greatest motive. And it is waiting for all men, all the families, all the nations, all the peoples, and all the earth. What are they bound to do? Look at the bottom of page 29. The nations of the world are obligated to sing. Their old songs will not do. They are going to have to sing a new song. And a new song is heard, as I just read to you in Isaiah 42, verse 10. Here it is in Isaiah 96. It's in a few other Psalms. And it's in the book of Revelation chapter 5. We must not merely write a factually true essay. What's the difference between writing an essay and singing? Song has your heart. Has your soul. Has your life and your spirit. It engages the soul of man with all the parts that mirror to some degree... God himself, which is why we are said to be made in the image of God. Most of the actions in the psalm are done by the peoples of the world in honor of God. Now let me ask you this. Since all nations do not worship God right now, how should we think of this worship vacuum? Because all the earth does not love God. All the peoples, the rest of the nations, the families, they do not love God. How should we think about this vacuum of worship? And the answer is, it should be seen as the greatest catastrophe, the greatest tragedy in the world. That God is not being honored by all the earth, all the peoples, all the nations, and all the families. The war in Ukraine is a small thing compared to the fact that the Savior, the Creator, the King is watching, and yet at best they are indifferent. 
They are more interested in Netflix than they are in the wonders that he did in the Council of Redemption or in creating them or in offering salvation to fallen mankind. They're more interested in their own sons and daughters than they are in his son. They are more interested in their bank account than they are in storing up treasures in heaven. And this lack of worship, this presence of an antagonistic ignorance is the single greatest catastrophe in the world, in all of history. This is the great problem with the world. And if this one problem were fixed, the universal would be relieved. The universal problems of the world would be relieved. If the one problem that these places do not glorify God, that is the great difficulty in all the world. The problem is there's a sun, but they deny that it's shining. There is water, but they refuse to drink it. There's a hospital, they won't enter. There's a song, they say, I don't like that song. I don't know that song. Or worse, I hate that song. So let me ask you this. Who is hurt when these people refuse to wonder and be amazed. When there is this God who has done all these things and they are supposed to be joining the angels, they are supposed to be tuning their voices, preparing their whole minds and souls. They've just got this short little window in life and basically this life is choir practice. This whole life they're supposed to be learning how to sing so that when they die, they can sing to that one great God. Who is hurt when these people do not care, do not see, do not taste. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When they refuse to taste or when they get a little bit of it in their mouth and spit it out, as Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5 say, they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, but they spit it out and said, I don't want this. I don't want this gospel. I don't want this kind of religion. Who is really hurt? And what's the answer? Themselves. They themselves are hurt. So if we have pity on them, we must go to them. Who else is hurt? We are hurt because we have to live with them. We have to live in a world that has those people there. We have to live in a world where they think foolishly and make bad laws where they steal and break in, increase their crime. And all of that affects us and that affects our worship. Number three, who else is hurt? Far nearer to the center, God is dishonored. And if we loved God, then why would we not devote our time and our energy to correcting this, the greatest of all tragedies? The great tragedy is not that a waterfall of souls is going into hell, but that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy that is greater than the UN, than greater than the World Health Organization. It is greater than the World Economic Forum. It is greater than all of the combined gross domestic products of all the nations in the history of the world. The fact that sinners are dying and going to hell. That problem is greater than all the world. But even greater than the greatest problem is the fact that God in his infinite beauty and perfection and happiness and glory smiles down on the earth through his sun and through the rain and through the sun and through all the comforts on this earth. And men say, I don't care. That is the great catastrophe of the world. Which is why 1 Peter 1 says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. 
In 1 Peter, they loved him because they had seen him by faith, though they had not seen him by sight. If you are a believer, you love and adore this eternal glory because it is the source of everything that makes you happy. And if you don't adore that glory, I question your faith. Because when God puts his seed in the heart of a man, it cannot die. And what proves to be the most amazing reality in the world is that they do not like it. As if the most perfect dish were prepared by the best cook, and yet when they tasted it, they spit it out. They are supposed to be singing, they are supposed to be worshiping, and by the power of God they can be changed so that they will worship. And we are given the permanent presence of the Almighty Spirit in our souls with the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us and he will go with us to the end of the world. So I close with this. What must we do if the nations reject this glory? Let me give you three solutions in closing. Three applications. What must we do if the nations reject their duty? We must dwell on God until our hearts and our minds are overcome by adoration and love. That's what we must do. When his people are overcome with great views of himself, then they will do what Daniel says in Daniel 11, verse 32. The people that knew their gods were strong and took action, or in the old King James, did exploits. So let me ask you, what ideas, what plans are filling your mind to bring the glory of God to these peoples. If the glory of God has captured us, if it has filled our heart and our soul, if we've begun to love and to know, then why would we not be making plans, setting aside money, thinking of ways that we can reach the nations? When the glory and wonder and honor and majesty and strength and beauty of God, all words that come from Psalm 96, when those words have got themselves into our hearts and into our souls, our lives will return again and again to evangelism and church planting missions. And they will return to the least reached people groups of the world. We will feel a claim on our hearts if we will only dwell on God. Our problem is we do not think enough about God. That's our greatest problem. And all of the means of grace, reading your Bible and praying and confessing your sin and evangelism and memorizing verses, all of those means of grace, those tools, baptism and the Lord's table, talking with other Christians, reading godly books, all of those tools is there to feed us and increase in us this appetite that we have for God, for his glory and his wonder. Let me put it this way in a negative before moving on to number two. Have you ever sometimes pondered what you will do in heaven and thought, I hope I'll be able to enjoy, and then you thought of some earthly pleasure like riding a bike or sleeping or taking a walk or swimming or eating food or playing sports. Have you ever thought I hope I'll be able to do that in heaven because what else would I do? This is a plain indication that we don't understand how 
glorious and beautiful and comfortable God himself is. We must dwell on him. That is why the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus. That is why we must consider him. Lest we be weary and faint in our minds. Number two, we must search out why our own hearts are not moved by wonder. Why are our own hearts cold? Where is the snow getting in? Where is the heat going out? What is sapping our strength? What is stealing our fuel? What is pouring water on our fire? Why aren't we overwhelmed with joy and glory and honor like David who wrote this song? If God is the spring that satisfies thirst, why are we not quenched with him? If a child does not see feminine beauty, we understand that he is still immature. And the way for the boy to realize the beauty that God has made is for him to mature, for him to grow. How many of us are self-centered in our actions and solutions? How many of us have a very big view of ourselves and a very small view of God? Have we set too much importance on this life rather than the next life? Are we laying up treasures on earth rather than in heaven? Are we setting our affections on things below, not on things above? Colossians 3.2. Only by disciplining and long practice can we ever hope to run a marathon. Only by days and weeks and months and years will you be able to play a piano. So let's search out why our own hearts are not moved by wonder. And it may be that we have neglected the means of grace. Number three. Remember, we're answering the question, what should we do? If the nations reject their duty, what can we do? Number three. We must contemplate the benefits of seeing and adoring the glory of God. If my soul were so renovated that it adored and enjoyed God, my entire life would be adjusted. All the disciplines would fit in place. I would read, I would pray, I would memorize. I would, I would be filled with God. We are masters of our lives regardless of what the heathen do with theirs. We can make choices. We can choose to do whatever we want with our lives even as the heathen can choose with theirs. So if the glory and wonder from God descended right down into our hearts, it is impossible that the missionary zeal would not rise at the same time. Let me tell you my own story. As best I can recall, according to the records of my church where I grew up in Pennsylvania, United States, it was the 29th of October, 1989, when a guest speaker came to my church. And I was 11 years old, and he preached on hell that we should be concerned to be saved so that we would go to heaven. And we should be concerned for others to be saved so that they would not go to hell. That was a good message, as well as I remember it. It touched my heart, and I gave my life to be a missionary that night. I remember being very concerned that people were going to hell. I gave my life to be a missionary and I thought for many years I would go to Papua New Guinea or some island because I'd seen the video Itao. 
That is a biblical motivation for evangelism. Luke 12, verse five. Do not fear him which kills the body. And after that is no more that he can do. But I tell you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body can cast the soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God wants us to be concerned about salvation. He wants us to be concerned about the fires of hell. The eternal conscious torment is a true and biblical doctrine. Jonah went to Nineveh with a terrifying message. And God has given us a true but sometimes negative message. Jude 23 that I quoted earlier on says, Snatch them out of the flame. In 1919, 100 years ago, the World Christian Fundamental Association listed the doctrine of eternal torment as one of the essentials of Christianity. So when I gave my life to be a missionary at 11 years old, I was giving my life to a biblical and important motivation. But it is not the most vital or the most long-lasting motivation. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the first section of the book is on the inferno, Dante's trip to hell. And he describes, for those 34 cantos, Dante's trip to hell. The last section of the poem is called The Paradise. And for 33 cantos or songs, Dante describes the wonder and the glory about heaven. And it was clear to me that the glory of God was more beautiful than the terror of hell was terrifying. The Bible would have us sing about his glory more than preach about his terror. We must do both, and I will do both. Both are in the Bible, and they must be taught and preached and believed. We must not give one penny, one step, one motion toward the false teachers who deny that hell has literal fire. But we should imbalance our hearts and our souls toward the beauty and the glory of God. A man who has seen God will go the farthest and last the longest in missions. The Bible closes the entire, its entire 66 books with five verses about the final judgment and the lake of fire. And then it follows with 30 Three verses about the glory of God and the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. Let us focus on the glory and let that charge our souls to last among all the earth and the peoples and the nations and the families. Are there any comments or questions tonight? Yes. Uh, David lived before Plato, so I prefer to think it's David's view, and Plato may be barred from David. Um, maybe there's some similarity. There might be some similarity between Greek philosophers and the truths of Scripture, uh, just like there can be similar similarities between Persian um, lawyers and Moses. Um, they may have borrowed it. I've I've been enamored for a number of years with the idea that. Plato and Aristotle and Socrates 
Heraclitus and the Greek philosophers had a copy of the Torah somehow, some way. They had to have light because where there's no vision, the people perish. But he who keeps the law, happy is he. So I don't know. I'm not an expert on Platonic thought, although I do know that Plato taught the world of the forms. It was a perfect, um, the perfect world to which all things in this world are a copy. Uh, it does sound to me like there's some similarity but if there is, it's because Plato borrowed from the truth, not that the truth borrowed from Plato. What, what do you think about that? It sounds like you've got some more behind that question. Um, I was just thinking when you brought that up, I thought um, you were talking at the beginning about art, especially. I thought the only reason why we could see the beauty of God and then want to go out and evangelize is because we've seen something like that and we want a copy of that. Yeah, that might be Ecclesiastes 3.11, written by Solomon, who also lived before Plato, who said God has set eternity in their hearts. Oh, what is that, Mr. Solomon? Perhaps it's some wonderful recognition of realities that are permanent beyond this world. Sounds a little bit like your buddy Plato, who came along a little bit after you. With closing prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, please show us more of the Father and more of the Son. Please fill us with images, unchanging confidence in the glory of God, that we might fear you and know you and love you, that we might think on your name, that we might be perfect and happy Christians. I pray that we be faithful, godly, dedicated believers in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would make us spurred on by visions of delight in eternity, spur us on to lead sinners to Christ, to plant churches among the poorest, hardest, most desperate places. Please raise up my children, raise up the children of our church, raise up those around us and bring about a great revival of many, many people devoting themselves to reaching all the earth, the nations, the peoples, the families of the earth, the heathen. We pray this in Jesus' name for the Tsongas and the Vendas and the Shonas, And Lord, have mercy on the Afrikaners and only awaken them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.